0: some of us are waking up to, some men are waking up to, is that there is a better way, and we don't necessarily know what it is, but we're starting to believe that there is a better way, or at least that this is not the right way. Um, So waking up to the idea that we can have rich, meaningful, emotional, connective relationships with our partners, and that that's actually a far more gratifying, peaceful, beautiful, meaningful, purpose-driven way to live.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Be Leave, Be Real, Be Bold podcast. I'm honored to be joined by Dallas Hartwig. You may know him from a few New York Times bestsellers, Whole30, and It Starts With Food. He's here to come talk about what the world needs most from men right now. He and I dig deep into our stories as we were raised in two completely different experiences and yet have come to some very similar conclusions about how masculine and feminine dynamics really play into our relationships and our attachment styles. He's an Enneagram 4, but really resonates a lot with my Enneagram type, the 8, as he was raised by a very overbearing mother. We dig deep into both of our stories today, Uh, including a time when I got lost when hunting with my dad. So if you're interested in learning more about Dallas Hartwig, please don't hesitate to connect with him on Instagram at Dallas Hartwig or on his website, dallashartwig.com. Without further delay, let's get into today's episode with Dallas Hartwig. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm honored to have Dallas Hartwig as my guest today. We first got introduced on Traver Bohm's Uncivilized podcast, And I could not wait to reach out literally like the next couple of days, hit you up by Instagram and you were kind enough to jump on the phone with me and get to know you a little bit better. Thanks again for joining me.
0: Absolutely. I'm glad you reached out. This is the kind of stuff that both of us really care about. So I'm excited to jam.
1: Yeah. We're going to nerd out a little bit on the Enneagram attachment styles and boy to man initiation, which I'm pumped about talking about, but a little bit of your backstory. You're a two-time national bestseller. Um, it starts with food and the whole 30 were two of your um, book titles. Kind of walk me through your journey to finding your purpose and how it's evolved.
0: <laughs> oh, that's like a five second answer. Uh, no, um, I, I think I said this to you actually on the phone when we first chatted. Um, I think my purpose is not one particular thing. I think what I've kind of realized is that my purpose is, is um, really a function of committing to giving the gifts that I have and the gifts that I have to give change over time. I think we sometimes misunderstand purpose as like one day I'm going to wake up and have this big eureka moment and, you know, and, and have an epiphany and be like, I finally know what my purpose in life is. And I don't think most people have that experience. I think there's kind of miniature versions of that along the way when they get, you know, incrementally closer. Um, but for me, it's, my best gifts are observing the world, noticing patterns, and overlaying different perspectives and different, you know, I mean I'm I'm very multidisciplinary, which is a nicer way of saying jack of all trades, master of none. But what that does, but the upside of that is that I can notice patterns from lots of different places and um and glean information to kind of cross-pollinate. And I've done that with my work. I mean, my background is as a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach. And then I did nutrition stuff and then I did functional medicine. And then I did sort of awareness around social connection and the priority of relationships. And now I'm kind of in the space of maturation and particularly the sort of masculine arc um, and all of the stuff that goes with that. So it really all, anything that I've done in public is just a like slightly delayed version of what I'm doing in private in my own life. Like it's, it's pretty, anyone who's known me for a long time can very tightly track what I talk about and what I write about and what I speak about at like, Oh, this is just a, like one or two or three year delayed version of what you were doing in your own life. Not that long ago. Yes. I uh, Totally,
1: re- totally relate to that with the path of, uh, strength and conditioning first. And then that began my, my career path, but also my purpose was tied in there too, and then I discovered precision nutrition. So that's where I oh, right. received my certification mm-hmm. and built a meal prep workshop off of that, that teaches people how to save time and money through meal prep. Um, the nutritional program that they choose is, is the difference maker. Well, what right. fits into your lifestyle? Um, meal prep works for a lot of different types of nutritional plans. And then f- finally, like we've landed with this podcast, uh, it's, almost three years old, three years in this June. And um, how did I arrive at, uh, at talking about relationships on a podcast? Well, uh, my clients started to come with me, come to me, and we started to see better results when we dug deeper into um, both their relationships currently and then the relationships in the past that were all tied to limiting beliefs that were holding them back to reach any goal that they had in their life.
0: Totally. Well, I think also, you know, if you just sort of think about the sort of natural progression through life from a like Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of perspective, like nutrition is obviously like the foundational stuff. and like Once we have like some sort of like basic function around sleep and movement and nourishment and some fundamental amount of sort of physical and psychological safety, then life gets interesting. Until then, we're, we're playing in a very small field. Um, a very small sandbox and I think what I'm hearing you say and certainly certainly my own projected experience there is when we sort that stuff out both for ourselves personally and also in teaching people about that stuff we are naturally drawn to more complex and nuanced and more interpersonal themes and eventually you know we get to this place and this is kind of the upper order Maslow stuff we get to the place where we like transcend self as a primary focus altogether. Whereas like the bottom of the pyramid, nourishing ourselves and seeking sex and getting sleep and trying to you know, protect ourselves, like it's almost exclusively about self. So is it, there's a sort of progressive inversion that takes place there that I'm somewhere in the middle process of.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and as you describe that process, I hear so much of your Enneagram type four in there. And with- so <laughs> When was it that you discovered the Enneagram and, and what have you discovered about yourself and being the individualists?
0: Ah, such a great question. Um, I I was told about the Enneagram um, about six years ago um, by a woman who later became my podcast co-host, Pilar Gerasimo, who is a brilliant, insightful, kind, amazing woman. And I'd never heard of it before. I wasn't really particularly interested in like, typing systems, because I'm a four, I don't want to be typed, I don't want to be something special. Um, And so I wasn't, like, I didn't even do Myers-Briggs, like, I was, like, just not into any, any of the systems. And um, at the time, I was towards the tail end of a really difficult, turbulent, chaotic marriage. And um, it wasn't too long after I met Pilar, which was unrelated, but that I, uh, my marriage ended. But I was in the space of, like, chaos and mayhem and chaos and mayhem puts me back into my childhood space where I look more like an age and um so I met Polar through a mutual friend at a functional medicine conference who was like you guys need to know each other and we sat down and I think it was like within the first half an hour she was like have you heard anything about the Enneagram and I was like no she's like well you should look this up and she pulled up on her phone the like bare bones description of an age she was like does this sound like you and I was like yeah (laughs) and then not realizing that like in the way she was meaning it wasn't actually a compliment um, (laughs) because that was sort of my like really like secondary unhealthy space Um, and what I've come to realize since then as I've done so much work on my own process and my own internal space since then and gotten so much healthier is that that was largely a sort of secondary coping adaptive thing but I'm really a four I mean that through and through I'm really a four um, so there's been sort of almost a reconfiguring of identities in the Enneagram lens over the last few years. Cause I used to think I was an eight. I was like, oh, this is what I do. Like I'm this is an eight. Um, but the all the like basic fear, basic desire stuff never quite resonated with me. And the the more I've looked at the four stuff, I'm like, that's totally me. Right. <laughs> so I'm an I'm a I'm a four-in going through my own uh, transition with, uh, identity there, I
1: guess. Which is the lifelong pursuit of a four is uh hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. That resonates a lot because, uh, when I'm at my best, I'm a lot like a two, uh, which is probably why the eight never completely resonated with you. Yes, you have, you certainly have some characteristics of an eight when you're not at your best, But when I'm at my best, I become a lot like the two. And at their best, they become a lot like a four. So when I find my unique place in this world where I can serve the underdog, that's me operating at my best. And that's you on kind of like an average day.
0: (laughs) Totally. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I haven't quite figured out what my best looks like yet, but I'm working on it.
1: I don't know if we ever will, but I wrote down – when you're creeping up towards the best and I hear a lot of this in your purpose and how you're describing it change over time is you became more self-aware, a lot more introspective, and you went on this journey of self journey for
0: self. Well, and even going back to your question about, about purpose, I mean, the, the idea for me is like the gift is the, the gift is the commitment to giving the gift, which is, such the like to giving of oneself and a supportive helping kind of way you know so there's all that kind of crossover too Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and the big challenge there is to do so without losing
0: self right Mm -hmm. well and the good thing is that um i'm always in the pursuit of self (laughs) so this like i never quite lose you know, I never quite take my eye off that as a thing, because that's just something that is always kind of in the background of mm-hmm. um, it's really interesting. I, I just got a note. Um, I've been married twice, um, got married very young and um, got a note. Yes, uh, day before yesterday from my first wife, who I haven't spoken to in three or four years. And she made a, a remark in because we were just talking on, on Messenger and she made a remark about like, I hope something to the effect of like, I hope you've, I hope you've had the chance to like have to chase all those wild dreams you had or something like that. And I kind of chuckled and I was like, yeah, I've always been this way.
1: Yeah. Considering the source on that comment, like,
0: uh, <laughs> totally. um, her, her and my relationship goes back um, 10 to 20 years.
1: Mm-hmm. So Who yeah. knows us better than, than previous intimate partners, especially in a totally. marriage. And um how close you once were at that time irregardless of the outcome uh sure. yeah i'm i'm sure that that's a pretty there's a lot of truth in that statement <laughs> uh as we're looking at ourselves on our best day and our worst day at, at our best selves and at our worst selves we we start to see layers of our shadow places of our of our shadow that need to be looked at and has the enneagram shown you more of your shadow cuz you were talking about at your worst, you're kind of like an eight. Right. And at totally. my worst, I'm kind of like an investigator. I need to know the right. truth, like right now. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, in the years that I was, because I've only, I've only sort of like gotten to Enneagram kind of like a medium amount. So I, I don't think I'm quite as, as fluent as you, but, um, but it certainly has allowed me to kind of to, to, to put some structure and organization around, oh, here are the red flags when I'm going into a more unhealthy space. And um, certainly, when for whatever reason you got kicked over into that kind of eight mode and the really unhealthy, eight, like I'm not just a, I'm a monster, right? Like mm-hmm. that's what eights become when they what, like an unhealthy eight's an actual monster. Um, and I've been that, yeah, like I've been that. And so identifying both when I start to trend in that direction, and using that as a way to kind of check myself and be like, oh, I really need to like get some stuff in order. But then in the inverse of that too, there's, I found a lot of compassion for past behaviors that I used to have a lot of shame and self-criticism for. But seeing it through the lens of like, that's my personality structure, trying to survive the world when it doesn't feel unsafe and to get thrown into this stressed, unhealthy state. Like there's, there's the both, the opportunity to kind of learn and grow through that, um, but then also find gentleness and compassion for Mm -hmm. shit that you're just not proud of at all
1: yeah that hits home for me absolutely and what jumped out at me during your conversation with Traver now that you bring up you literally spoke to me when you said this line of if you're insecurely attached and 40 years old you essentially have the fundamental tenets of the nervous system of a toddler and we're looking at that through the attachment theory lens right I mean, there's no better description than myself at 40 years old, kind of re- wrestling with who he is through, through attachment speaking styles. Speaking about me. And,
0: yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, so you were speaking of yourself and it just landed with me because I'm a complete oh, yeah, totally. stranger. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I was speaking of myself um, from my own kind of observations itself and you know all of that, but... I look out at the world at large and in particular kind of the way men are operating and, and showing up in the world right now. And, you know, the attachment research, just says somewhere around half, half the people are securely attached. And I look out and I'm like, I know like four people that show up as consistently secure in the relationships that they get to observe them in. Um, so I don't know whether that research is really, I mean, this is where I kind of get muddy with, some of those definitions, because, you know, I'm looking at it in a really broad and general way, Um, extrapolating, you know, attachment well beyond just primary attachment figures to talk about the way we show up with lots of different people in our lives. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, it's a wildly unpopular idea. Uh, This idea, and it's very confronting, it certainly was confronting to me when I sort of realized, like, oh, because when I'm in a sort of unhealthy, insecure space, I'm quite anxious. Mm -hmm. And guess how awesome and anxiously attached it is in an unhealthy space. Like, it's just, it's just disastrous. Yeah. And it's been disastrous. And, and it wasn't really until the last several years where I was like, what, what is like, what is going on here? And because I so often felt out of control, like a toddler. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then that idea of like, oh, right, that fundamental tenets that we bring to all significant relationships in that space are ones that were formed when we were months and a couple of years old. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't changed, it hasn't been updated, right? If we didn't progressively internalize that strong, loving, um, omnipresent, always accepting parent as we got older so that we went then had them, you know, kind of internally as adults ourselves, we're still trying to figure out how to create and, and um, foster a safe sense of proximity with our attachment figures, whoever those are now, um, even when we're 40. Mm-hmm. Like, this is me. I can totally say it. this is me too. So I'm finding a way through that same space.
1: Well, then glad to meet you now so that we don't have to go through it alone. And a, a, key, a key thought that comes to mind when you when you say that out loud is that well, securely attached individuals may not be looking for a typing system to solve their relationship right. problems like attachment theory. So maybe that's why we don't necessarily gravitate or notice a securely attached person in our friend group because oh. they don't come to us with relationship problems like unavoidant or an anxiously attached person. And to your point, I've, I've thought a lot on why when I'm looking through the lens of the Enneagram, and I'm not in a healthy place, why then do I have anxious attachment?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, because it's all the same thing, right? Like if you have some sort of deep dysregulation, um, whatever lens you look at it through, you're moving into a stress state. And maybe, maybe just stress is the, is the simplest heuristic there. Like um, it'll change the way your adaptive personality structures show up. It will, it will threaten the parts of you that are very young and very afraid that someone's gonna leave or someone's gonna harm you in some way. Um, but really, and it goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about Maslow's needs. It really threatens our sense of physical and psychological safety, right? That's what's happening in attachment space. Our sense of physical and psychological safety is being threatened. It's, it's, it's only one level above not having food and not being able to sleep right and so I think that it's, it's important to like underscore like these are absolutely essential critical aspects of, of being human and feeling safe in the world and it's no wonder that we don't have uh, a beautiful effortless sense of contribution and belonging and purpose every day of our lives when we feel insecure and unsafe right like mm-hmm. there are certain sort of rough prerequisites that have to go on there and i think that again pulling back you know pulling attachment theory back in as long as that system is chronically activated like in an insecure relationship it will impair our buoyancy as humans it will impair our ultimate maturation and that was tragically like my my experience in my last relationship was um We, not her, me, we showed up in a way that was so chronically dysregulating for me that I wasn't maturing in that relationship. Um, And that's not blame. That's just a recognition that like us in combination weren't able to find this really secure and stable place. Um, And it's tragic. And Mm -hmm. I had to end that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, for that reason, um, and again, like want to underscore, like not her, like we couldn't do it. Um, and you know, the there's so many models for healing insecure attachment styles, um, and but the, the one of the central ideas there is that you have some sort of secure attachment figure to start drawing from and co-regulating from and internalizing that secure attachment. And this is where having a really good therapist is such a great you know, thing to do because even if you have a really healthy, mature, secure, romantic partner, primary primary partner, um, they get triggered, you have life stress, things happen, like that's just kind of, and it's hard, unless they're extremely well-versed in attachment theory and they know what they're doing and they're doing it all very deliberately and they're like almost acting as if a therapist would, It's really challenging to have them be, to show up in a way that's so consistent and so secure that the insecure partner can really heal that attachment in that relationship. Like uh, my observation is that a pairing of an insecure partner and a secure partner, the insecure partner won't necessarily make the secure partner insecure or less secure, um, but it tends to drift in a negative direction in that scenario. Maybe, I don't know if that's true in the like broader research sense, but that's my general
1: observation. Sure. Yeah. It's relatable and it, it helps me draw upon personal experience Mm -hmm. because while I'm co-creating a earned secure relationship and attachment now, um, because my partner and I label it, Mm -hmm. Hey, this is my avoidant attachment style showing up. Okay. That I hear what you're saying when you say that's your anxious attachment style showing up. So what we get to do is we, we co-create um, where we get to meet in the middle because of the anxious avoidant trap being a lot like polar opposites where you flip a magnet and they either gravitate to each other or flip the magnet the other way and then they polarize away mm-hmm. from each other.
0: Which is an and- excruciating process. exhausting excruciating process i've been there
1: either either way whether you're uh, being drawn together or being pushed apart based on your polar opposites it's still exhausting and one thing that you said in there is like even if your partner is behaving and acting and secure like a therapist they are not our therapist and they're certainly not supposed to play every single role in our, sure. in our world, in our lives. And that's part of the co-creation process is understanding where we fit into each other's lives, what needs we're going to meet for each other, for ourselves, and then what we get to do together.
0: Well, I think there's, even for those of us who are like, have, have worked hard and continue to work hard to you know, kind of earn security, um, there's always going to be those those old scars, those old tender points, you know, and and I think the more you can be explicit about what's going on um, for both partners, the more you can, you know, the more, the more effortless it can be, we're like, oh, you just really need some reassurance right now. Or, oh, you just need a little bit of quiet time to breathe, to settle, your, settle yourself down. And then we can be engaged in a way that's really good again. Um, and like, the language isn't necessarily complicated and the, the model's not actually complicated, but you kind of have to speak the language.
1: And you both have to put effort into the experience right. as well. That that's the tricky part is like, how does, how do we face the reality that both of us want to, or one of us wants it more than the other? Cause we can't want it right. for both of us.
0: Right. Totally. Well, in my experience, and, and it's hard, I, this is such, and I, I what I'm about to say sounds exactly like something an anxious person would say. So I'm just acknowledging that in advance, but so often the experience of an anxiously attached partner is that they are um, burdened with the motivation and the, the, the work, the emotional labor of the relationship because the avoidant partner, broadly speaking, is in less internal pain and is less compulsively driven to fix the problem. Um, And I I think that's really interesting because when I look, when I zoom out and I hear what women are saying about their male partners on like across the sort of population scale, it's the same, they say the same thing. Women are tired of being uh, their their partner's therapist. They're tired of doing the emotional labor. They're tired of basically over-functioning chronically where the men sort of sit back and go, more or less fine. Like, I don't know what your big deal is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like we Terry real talks about this. Like this is like something like a, a really common experience. And I do see it largely through the anxious avoidant lens. Um, and that's not, again, I'm going to, it's not necessarily technically exactly what's going on for every individual at their primary attachment figure level, but broadly, I think that we socially condition men to be avoidant. Mm. And, um, What I mean by that is because of the way we treat male babies and then male boys and then men, um, the whole narrative of like, be tough, be strong, don't let them see you cry, beat the other guy, you know, um, like the the entire heroic narrative about what, what men are supposed to be in the patriarchal world conditions us to betray our own, like empathy for ourselves care for ourselves, connection to ourselves. And then as a natural extension, we can't show up and have that empathy and connection for others. And so it's really good if you just want to create a warrior society where you have men who are largely robotic, who don't have empathy for themselves and others, because those are good warriors. Um, It doesn't really make good any other function. Like they're really just good as warriors and economic warriors, keyboard warriors, like sort of cogs in the wheel of the economic machine but they don't make good fathers. They don't make good romantic partners. Um, They don't make good brothers and sons and friends and anything else other than literal warriors and the sort of economic warriors what you go to the Mm -hmm. office and kick ass. Um, And the more I look, the more I see that and I'm pissed off about it because it's it's a systematic uh, theft of the inner world of men. And I understand that (laughs) there's a dicey space. I understand that um, speaking publicly about what patriarchy costs men is a difficult topic because it costs everyone else all of that and more, but it doesn't make it less true. right? Mm. And I think the thing that I would love to see more of men and everyone else waking up to is the reality that um, we don't even know what we're missing most of the time in terms of the, the rich inner experience. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, again, similar to the avoidant experience of mm-hmm. disconnection from that. Um, I don't even feel my needs. I think it's fine. I don't, know what you, I don't know what the problem is with this relationship. Like everything's fine. Like if you could just settle down, we'd be fine. Um, we just so often what avoidance will say to their anxious partners.
1: I'm right there. And I totally am on board with what you're talking about Uh, having that experience in past relationships where I'm like, I'm kind of oblivious, but it's a numbed oblivious where like the other things that are more important in my life. and I'm using air quotes there, Mm -hmm. like career, friends, um, my daughter, um, hanging with my buddies to drink alcohol, (laughs) anything and everything. you know, not necessarily, not necessarily putting that relationship last on purpose or intentionally simply just putting it like fourth or fifth on the list because I'm oblivious and I'm numbed out emotionally. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a hundred different things that we can numb out on, but that's an excellent segue into, into what we wanted to talk about today, which was that progression of a, of a, Infant to a boy, to a young adult to a man,
0: yeah, I mean again, the thing that i the more I look at this stuff and observe the world and, and think about you know like what patriarchy is and how do we get here and what does it mean to be a man versus a boy and some of those things, the more deeply disturbed and angry I'm becoming looking at both how the system developed and what it really costs everyone. Um, you know, not, not, not primarily men, but including men. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think what's interesting is that um, when we're children, we're especially when we're very young children, um, boys and girls are not really that fundamentally different. And I think a lot of the differences we very much are very much acculturated, very much trained um, and so there's, there's more, especially once we hit puberty, we become, broadly speaking, much more, um, much more different. Um, what's interesting to me when I think about the intrinsic feminine initiations that take place, or sort of, you know, kind of benchmarks or um, signposts along along the feminine journey. I mean, you know, onset of menses, childbirth menopause are the sort of biological anchors for some of those transitions. And if you kind of speak about the sort of maiden, mother, crone archetypes, um, they nest quite nicely into those transitions. They're not exclusively biological, but they're kind of anchored in that, um, generally speaking. And they're intrinsic. Those things happen, they come from within a woman and her feminine experience. And men don't have a comparable thing. They don't have that. They, their initiations, their transitions, their failures in the world have to be foisted upon them externally. And they have to be like dragged kicking and screaming through the transition, through the initiation. And that's what we see in primitive cultures um, with the transition from boyhood to manhood is they have to be, so often they are kidnapped in the middle of the night by uh, the village elders, you know, the, the, the uncles and grandfathers who contain the wisdom and who are doing the sort of initiatory um, rite of passage. But it's, it, it happens to them and they are not into it. Um, and it's very forceful. And I think that's true at all of the different cyclical initiations for men through their entire process. Um, something happens externally, the, a, a failure, a loss, a crisis, um, a rock bottom. Um, and I think that's both tragic, but also just the way it is. It's painful. Uh, and we can't seem to spontaneously internally self-generate um, graceful initiations and transitions between those phases. So going from boy to man, I mean, really the, the reorientation that takes place there, I think in my mind, the single largest transition is of going from a you know, pubescent boy who is um, energetic, and self-interested and hierarchical and competitive and wants to jostle in among his peers and kind of figure out who's got, who can run the fastest and who is the biggest penis and who can do the whatever. Um, and it's very much this sort of um, jostling in the hierarchy. And that works really well in that space because it it tempers the boys and it tests their mettle and it brings out some of their best qualities and that only really continues to be an adaptive and productive um, scenario when there is this external initiation put upon the boys somewhere in their teenage years um, that they get basically they get their asses handed to them and they get kicked out of the like very self-interested egotistical and even overtly abusive mode that that adolescent boys the very unempathetic mode and the very selfish mode um, that that adolescent boys have Um, and they get reoriented. They literally get, they go through symbolic death and symbolic rebirth, and they become a whole new person, often with a new name and a new identity. And when they get welcomed back into the village, um, into the family, into the tribe, it's as a new person who is an adult with a whole different set of responsibilities. And that set of responsibilities is oriented to the betterment of the tribe or the family Mm -hmm. or the clan. And if we don't do that initiation, that reorientation, the competitive, hierarchical, dominating, self-interested, narcissistic, and abusive characteristics get carried forward. Mm-hmm. And you just look at at the world and that's, it's there, it's, it's everywhere you look. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it be, and really, so many of the characteristics of the patriarchal system, broadly speaking, are simply, and I, this is like really a simplified thing, but they're really um, uninitiated boys And you just take that template and you just expand it out over all of civilization, right? It is Mm -hmm. um, extractive, selfish, coercive, abusive, and especially like dominating a hierarchical organization, right? And that works if you want an economic system like capitalism. It works in sort of imperial ways where you basically go grab other people's stuff and just take it because you can, because you're stronger. Um, and so it's really, it's, it's a very extractive system. You look at men who are um, coer- uh, coercive in their sexual relationships. It's the same story everywhere you look. And there are other later initiations into different, different phases um, for men, but it's almost like they're, it's a moot conversation until we've had this very first um, reorientation from self to others, to, to tribe, to clan. Because um, if we don't do that, mm-hmm. none of the other stuff is even relevant to do because there is a rough right. um, um, sequence there.
1: Right. Yeah, well, uh, thank you very much. That was mind-blowing. And what comes <laughs> up for me... <laughs> Hang on, guys. The roller coaster isn't done yet. We got a long way to go here. Um, what comes up for me when you talk about that is that Generally speaking, teenage years, early adulthood is when the initiation phase happens. Um, for me, I believe that my initiation phase happened much later in life. You know, uh, modern men might be faced with loss, grief, mm-hmm. um, rock bottom, I think you said in there as well. And it could be my 37th year or my 32nd okay. year or whatever. Very,
0: it very often is much later like that, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and why I share that, that's my personal experience, is because when we're talking about villages and primitive cultures, that doesn't sound very practical as a system of initiating boys into manhood in our modern society. Mm-hmm. So wh- what's our solution? What do we do for this next generation that needs your leadership and eventually needs my leadership? What do we do for the next generation?
0: I don't know yet is the short answer. Um, but that's, I mean, I've got a, I've got a son who's uh, turning eight in a couple of months and he is the reason I'm doing this, you know? Um, because he deserves a better life and a better world than I had and that you mm-hmm. had as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, how do we do that in a, in a way that's practical? I'll almost dodge that all together and say, I don't give a shit what's practical. Like, you know, because because if we think about things through the what's practical lens, we are limited to the world as it currently exists. And the world as it currently exists is not the playground I want to play in anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to think about what's practical. I want to think about what works. And in a world that's designed in the way that doesn't work, um, I think it's it's too kind of confining. Now, that being said, yes, I'm interested in pragmatic answers. Um, I think, and just to kind of go back and talk about initiation as kind of an idea, um, I often hear from men that they, you know, they played college football and so that was their initiation, or they went to the military, or they, you know, been in combat, or um, they started, you know, they were an entrepreneur in their 20s. And when I really talk to them about what their experience was there, I don't hear initiation. What I Mm -hmm. hear is, um, pressure, stress, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. crisis, um, testing oneself, you know, whether it is again in combat or it's in a, you know, entrepreneurship, or it's, you became a, uh, you know, you had a parent die and you had to take care of your younger siblings. Like there's some sort of thing that like threw you into a difficult situation where you had to kind of be tested. Um, but that's not the same as initiation. And, um, there is a a new identity that comes out of initiation that um, doesn't tend to happen through things, or at least doesn't happen commonly and systematically through experiences like being in the military and going to combat. Because, um, you know, being in the military is an extraordinarily hierarchical, patriarchal arrangement, right? We all play in, you know, we all play within that system. And, the more hierarchical a system or a society is, the more problems it's going to have in terms of the like patriarchal fallout. Um, Because when I say hierarchy, I really mean domination. And domination in this context is extractive and coercive and abusive and self-interested and unempathetic. And those are not Mm -hmm. the features of a healthy society. Um, and, uh, a dear friend of mine, Rainier Wild, um, he's also got a, a, really great podcast, but he and I have this ongoing conversation and he made the point quite a while ago to me that the archetype of warrior is really misunderstood and really kind of distorted in the modern world. And, um, you know, the warrior archetype, and I think, of, and I'll kind of think of an archetype there as a, um, a part of our psyche that fits within a certain part of our developmental sequence that fits within a larger tribe, right? So it's always nested within this, con- this context larger than one individual. And the warrior archetype, we think, is really a narrowing and a sort of um, distortion of the larger, older archetype of hunter. Because when you think about what young men would do, let's say 100,000 years ago, when they are initiated into the service of the tribe, they are taught uh, lessons about um, things like pro- protecting and providing the tribe, pr- providing for the tribe. Um, and so all the, the, the features of discipline and focus and confidence and competence and cooperation and risk tolerance and courage, like all of those things that are very warrior characteristics are hunter characteristics. But the critical difference there is that they, is that hunters haven't lost empathy for themselves and others. Mm. And that's why you don't have um, hunter gatherer societies having large scale horrific warfare that is just you know genocidal in nature. Um, that happens when you get into more civilized societies um, where um, killing other people to obliterate them serves a certain purpose. Um, but the more empathetic you are, the less like you are, less likely you are to selflessly throw, sacrifice yourself in the service of, of something greater. And I think it's worth noting that the entire American fixation with heroes and warriors um, and the pursuit of glory at the expense of sacrifice of self um, is a very adolescent mentality like that's what happens with um, teenage boys they are interested in glory for themselves by beating the other guy um, yeah. An initiated a fully initiated mature man is not interested in the glory he's interested in serving the tribe and that might take on the form of, combat, protect and provide, you know, all these other things that are warrior or hunter characteristics, but that's just a small piece of what's there. Mm-hmm. But when we don't get initiated and we don't move beyond that stage, what we start to have to do is idolize heroes and warriors because there isn't anything else to look at. And this is where the really messed up part of civilization and patriarchy specifically it becomes a closed loop because in order to have a society that's built around hierarchy and competition and domination, you need to teach people and convince them that that's actually all that matters. And so that's what we teach little boys, but more broadly, people in general is like, you got to win. Mm-hmm. You have to be, you know, like you're in it for you, hustle and grind, that whole narrative, including, and men specifically, including suppressing the fact that, you don't even know yourself, you feel hollow and numb, and there's nothing really rich and meaningful in your life, but you're so numb, you don't even know that. Like, that is the suppression of empathy for self that we start doing to boys when they're infants and we train them all the way through. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: that is a lot. And and I wanna, I wanna close our own loop today um, by sharing a little bit about what's coming up for me over here is um, I grew up hunting, you know, born in Montana. My uncles and my dad would take me along on every single 4 a.m. trip out to get deer and antelope. And eventually when I was old enough to go through hunter safety, I went through the courses and hunted with my dad twice after we moved to Colorado. Um, It's harder to do in Colorado because it's more populated than say Montana. Uh, The deer just don't behave the same way because there's so many people around. And when I was 15, we, we took a trip Southern Colorado, and I got lost. And it's the late afternoon. We're trying to get the feeding time in the four o'clock, five o'clock window and uh, starting to get dusk. And I got scared and um, eventually found my way back to the truck. You know, as it's getting to be dark, my dad's there waiting for me. And it was an extremely scary, not intentional um, simulation of death but still an experience that I took forward with me. However, what came up for me today, and it kind of brought that memory back to the surface is when you talked about college football. And the only thing I heard was locker room talk. And then when you talked about uh, going into combat and the military, the first thing that came to mind was um, hazing. Those two things, while yes, sports are like a simulation of death in their own right if it's a full contact sport. Now, all that being said, I came home from my hunting trip not able to share any of those fears because of that suppression that infants to boys to young men are taught that it's not okay to be afraid. It's not okay to be scared. Um, I remember that day very vividly in my mind of like, not knowing what to do after dark. I'm not familiar with this area. So I wanted to close our loop today in kind of asking a question of like, it's amazing to know all this stuff about the systematic uh, raising of boys in the modern era. If we don't do initiation with man, uh, with purposeful initiation with boys, what happens? Why do we want to care about that as an adult?
0: Because if we don't become men, there are no elders for our sons. That's all it is. And um, if I don't, if I still operate from a place of, actually, it's weird, I just got goosebumps saying that. Whew, that's a big one. I've, um,
1: I've, been, I've been sweating for 10 minutes, like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what, it, that's what it comes down to, is that um, we know that the way it's working right now um, isn't working well for anyone, boys, girls men, women, anyone else, everyone else, the earth, Mm -hmm. right? Because the whole Mm -hmm. system is extractive in nature. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what some of us are waking up to, some men are waking up to is that there is a better way. And we don't necessarily know what it is, but we're starting to believe that there is a better way, or at least that this is not the right way. Um, So waking up to the idea that we can have rich, meaningful, emotional, connective relationships with their partners, and that that's actually a far more gratifying, peaceful, beautiful, meaningful, purpose-driven way to live, right? Because men are so, in both good and not so good ways, fixated on this idea of purpose. Um, Mm. But purpose is not just kicking ass at business. Right, And so so often we get narrowed down into like, what's your purpose, meaning like, what's your business niche and how do you win against the competitor? But that's not purpose. That's still that same adolescent mode put into the economic sphere. Um, And that's why it almost doesn't matter what specific thing you point your purpose at, because your purpose is really bringing forward your best gifts. And that can look like business. It can look like community service. It can look like education. It could look like just being a father and that's your entire purpose in life. Um, And what greater opportunity to bring about a better world by actually taking your son or daughter through the experience of um, becoming a more whole, integrated, mature person themselves. Because mm-hmm. it's not spontaneous from within us. We ha- we're social animals. We, ha- we learn by observation. And as a kid, I looked out and there was nothing to observe. My dad wasn't there. There was, there was no, When he was physically there. That was it. And um, I would like to be a better model for my son so that he can better be a better model for his son and so on uh, and so forth.
1: Yeah yeah, very well said, and, and if I could add on to that in any way, I would, I would see the result in my own life of not being initiated in a purposeful way, of an, a man who is self-suppressing through many, many ways, like finding um, overworking, you know, workaholic was rewarded as opposed to counseled. Well, because
0: work workaholic is the same the pattern hero. of yes, the hero. It's literally the yes, same pattern yeah. of throw yourself into the fire, be the sacrifice, into the breach, kind of warrior ideal. Um, but it's not in the service of any tribe anymore. It's in the service of an economic system that doesn't give a shit about you because you're an expendable resource, right? That's what warriors are—they're right. expendable resources. Yeah. And men stuck in the warrior mode feel like expendable resources.
1: Got it. And I wrote down a note while you were talking much, much earlier in our conversation. And what I felt like I was suppressing the most and what the world deserves most is my consciousness. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about the style of initiating boys into manhood in a primitive culture, a village type culture, a hunter gatherer way, I came away with one huge benefit that would greatly enrich civilization and our personal relationships. And that is knowing my, knowing what consciousness is to me. Mm-hmm. And how do I bring that to my day-to-day life, my, my relationship and my, and my true purpose in this world and what gift I have to share.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. And what I'm hearing you say is, and actually the archetypal work beyond the sort of hunter and warrior mode is that space of deep inner work, of study, of self-awareness, and sort of the alchemist in the laboratory kind of experience, which is exactly what you just described. And I hear you saying the space that I and men need to move forward into beyond that warrior-hunter kind of um, energy is of deep inner work, of self-knowledge, of self-mastery on the interior instead of just the externalized physical protect and provide kind of mode. We're, we're saying yeah. the same thing. I love it.
1: Great, great summation of, of an amazing conversation. I cannot thank you enough, Dallas, for for joining me today. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that?
0: I'm fairly active on Instagram. I'm at Dallas Hartwig there. Um, I also just started a new um, text messaging thing where I'm sending out messages. Um, that's on my Instagram profile, um, sort of an experimental thing. Um, that's my primary thing. I'm also at uh, DallasHartwig.com is some of my longer writing there.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I loved perusing some of your um, blog posts. Uh, Quit throwing elbows was a personal favorite of mine. (laughs) And uh, I can so relate because, you know, like, uh, being single for three years, sleeping alone for three years, and then getting into a partnership, I'm like, I need to be conscious of how I sleep now, of how I'm not how I'm not accidentally steamrolling like the type eight or intentionally being a Mack truck like the eight has a tendency to do totally. in my partnership, in my business, in my parenting, um, in my existence in this world.
0: Well, i love to, I love to hear you put all those things together because when I wrote that post, I didn't think about it that way, but I love that you've extrapolated that. That's great. Oh
1: man, it's, it's been an inspiration to chat with you today. And uh, what do you say we, we catch up again soon and check in with where you're at?
0: I love that. That'd be great. Thank you for having me.
1: Welcome to the Believe, Be Real, Be Bold podcast. My name is Dave Glazer in Denver, Colorado. Wanted to welcome you to the podcast where we explore the Enneagram, attachment styles, and love languages to help you show up as your most authentic self in modern relationships. Each week, we invite an expert guest to come share their tools, tips, and knowledge for you to show up authentically as you date in the modern world. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with one person Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and leave a written review so that we know how we can serve you best in future episodes. Welcome to the community, and I'd like to introduce our topic of the day.